News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn with Professor Christina Greer, who's vacationing in an undisclosed location now that the semester is done. Hello. Hello there, Harry Siegel. Ooh. And we're also joined by Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Well, hello. In a few minutes, we'll be talking with former Queens Eagle editor and now City Limits senior reporter David Brand to talk about the state of homelessness in New York City. And then you'll hear a conversation between Alex and Shams DeBaron, better known as the Homeless Hero. But first, let's go through the news over another busy week. Two new polls show Andrew Yang slipping, Eric Adams staying at the top, and Catherine Garcia who's now been endorsed by the New York Times and the New York Daily News rising up. An Emerson College WPAX poll has Garcia at 21%, Adams at 20 and Yang at 18 while Afanta's poll has Adams at 18 and Yang and Garcia at 13 In any case, it's good news for Garcia, who doesn't have as much money in the bank or institutional support, and, as she told us on this podcast, is banking on people finding out about her as they finally key in on the contest, which is now less than a month away. Three weeks to early voting, I believe. As Dana Rubenstein noted in an excellent New York Times piece, the biggest polling firms have all shifted away from this contest. They say because of the complication and expense of polling a ranked choice contest. So you might want to take all those numbers with a grain of salt. Meantime, Diane Morales, campaign manager, abruptly left and the candidate took the day off the trail to regroup before putting out a... uh, Very vague statement about the uh, troubles there, which apparently involved bullying of brown and black staff members by one senior staffer. Meantime, Andrew Yang and his wife Evelyn ripped into the Daily News for what they said was a racist cartoon showing Andrew, who's lived here for 25 years, as a stereotypical Asian tourist in Times Square. The news stood by the cartoon by longtime editorial cartoonist Bill Bramall and shot back with the story headlined, Boo Hoo Andrew saying he trots out race card over editorial cartoon. Maya Wiley also condemned the cartoon, which perhaps ironically came in response to Yang's iconic interview with Z-Way this weekend, where he said the Times Square, which is his subway station, is his favorite subway station, and also talked about, quote, angry Asian guys at the gym, saying he used to be one, and then answered the question, what are your favorite racial stereotypes? By talking about how Asians love food, bubble tea, and are afraid of their parents, while avoiding the good-at-math cliché he frequently used when he was running for president. In criminal justice news, a federal judge released a crack dealer with the three-year sentence after two years locked up inside the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan, ruling the conditions there were so abysmal that, quote, it's the equivalent of time and a half or two times what would ordinarily be served. This came just after another federal judge observed that the facility and the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn are, quote, run by morons, and said there is no excuse for the conditions inside these two institutions. And finally, a couple pieces of news that will bring us into this conversation with David Brandt. Ahead of a city council vote for Thursday to increase the value of rent vouchers that homeless New Yorkers can use to rent their own apartments, news outlet The City reports that the de Blasio administration has reneged on a commitment to make those vouchers available to residents of youth homeless shelters and hid an internal agreement steering young people to adult shelters as a condition for getting those vouchers. And the big one here, for many folks, New York's $2.4 billion 
back rent relief program supported by federal funds will finally start taking applications by June 1st, says Governor Cuomo. Other states already are. And this comes after a previous program that was supposed to provide a much smaller $100 million in relief to tenants and their landlords only ended up distributing less than half of that as strict eligibility standards deterred people from applying and meant that many who did were shut out. So there's certainly a lot of people here who, uh, who could use this uh, relief for the last 12 or even 18 months. Yeah, I mean, I think, Harry, your introduction is so important because it really does stress yet again just how important it is for New Yorkers to vote on June 22nd and take advantage of early voting uh, if they can. You know, the polling for me, and I know certain people are like, polling's not that difficult, just do it. I think because of ranked choice voting, it does make it a little peculiar because I think there are certain candidates that are non-starters for folks. And then there are other candidates that, uh, you know, people are willing to vote second, third or fourth. And then we see, you know, someone like Diane Morales or Scott Stringer, who both of them are having, you know, sort of turbulent times. Will their base just completely abandon them or will they just get shifted down down ballot? It's it's pretty unclear. Will the Yang bubble burst as people hear you know him speak more and more and realize he does not know what he's talking about? Right. Will McGuire be able to or Donovan use all that money and convince people via the television that they're important, even though they haven't been able to do so in in debates? And don't forget, we still have, you know, a debate on June 2nd, and I believe another debate after that. So, you know, we're we're a tiny bit less than a month out, but a month is, you know, what a difference a day makes. A month can make a huge difference. And, you know, the the cartoon, Harry, I've been thinking a lot about it. And, you know, my blood boils, and I'm trying not to because I'm on vacation. However, Andrew Yang, you cannot traffic in racial stereotypes your entire political career, and then have a newspaper cartoon come out that is, I would say, quite benign, and then say, oh, this is a stereotype. Sir, last week, you were playing the game of let me list all of my favorite racial stereotypes. <laughs> Borderline unprovoked, by the way. He talks about Asians at the gym and then gets asked, what's your favorite racial stereotype? And has a plethora at the ready. Right. Any respectable candidate would say, actually, I prefer not to traffic in racial stereotypes. So for someone who has made so much of his political career doing so, which we brought up on this podcast because I had a problem with his use of I'm good at math because I'm Asian and the concerns I had as a black professor, as a black person and someone who has been a black student in a classroom that knows the teachers oftentimes believe that and what it does to black and brown children. I don't think that he has a single leg to stand on if he thinks that this cartoon is going to be his his last month push to say, oh, woe is me. Look, I'm being treated unfairly. You can actually have a critique of Andrew Yang, who has zero record of doing anything for the city of New York and not even voting. That's what the cartoon is about. So the frustration I have is, you know, there is enough anti-Asian animus in this city and in this country. That is real and it's valid and it must be addressed. And that goes for racial and ethnic groups. We see this with the rise of anti-Semitism. We see this with the black community in all five boroughs. However, Andrew Yang, don't choose a cartoon when all of a sudden your polling is slipping to say that this is the time that all of a sudden, you know, there's anti-Asian sentiment when it when we know the real argument is that the critique is you ain't been here. We didn't know about you. Nobody knew who you were until you were on that national debate stage talking about I'm Asian and I'm good at math and I'm fun times. He's essentially, you know, what Corey Johnson was supposed to be in this race. 
the Fun Times candidate, right? The entertainment candidate. The difference is Corey Johnson actually has a substantive record of legislation and public service. So I think as we move forward, this next month is always going to be interesting because we have an in-person debate on June 2nd where the the barbs hit a little differently when I have to look across the podium and say it to your face um, and say it with your chest, right? So I'm curious as to how that shakes out. But also, people aren't into musings. As we get closer to June 22nd, folks want to know concrete solutions and policy proposals. You know, and so we have David Brand coming up, who's laying out a really complex analysis of homelessness in New York. And it can't just be homelessness is really bad. It's not cool. There are a lot of people who are homeless. Well, thank you. We can read, right? What is your policy if you want to be the 110th mayor of New York? And I think that hopefully a lot of people who listen to this podcast and New Yorkers writ large will see that their vote is imperative to make sure we get someone in Gracie Mansion who fundamentally understands how the city, state, federal government interact, how we need to have various agencies and also police at times, but not always, right? And social service providers to sort of solve some of the problems that are longstanding in the city and also some of the ones that have come up during COVID. I do think that with Andrew Yang in this cartoon, and I'm not an objective observer here, I uh, worked at the Daily News, sat next to uh, Bram Hall, who I liked tremendously. And I think this race has really been framed in certain ways by Eric Adams' uh, declaration back in January telling folks, go back to Ohio, go back to Iowa. New York City belongs to the people that were here and made it what it is, right? Like Yang has lived here for 25 years, and I, I've talked to some of his uh, supporters and, and, and other agents who don't like him who really chafe at the idea that they're treated as somehow foreign or other. I'm sure that there's politics involved in, in the – upset now as, as there necessarily must be when, when something happens involving someone running for mayor. But I, I, I sort of take seriously the, the, the people who feel concerned by this or hurt by that representation. And I'm positive that that was not the, uh, the intent of the cartoon, which I do think is just uh, you're a tourist here. Not because you haven't lived here. You have for 25 years and your wife was born here and raised here and so on. You're raising your kids here but because you don't know much about how the city runs. Right. And you spent the campaign sopping up attention while parading your ignorance about that. So I believe that you do know how it runs in your own life and for your kids going to school and for where you're taking the train. But when you're offering solutions for the whole city from a place of deep ignorance, but you've got a scarf and you're charming, I also understand why that bothers people. With that, let's bring in David Brandt and talk about uh, – homelessness in New York, and uh, a lot of people have a lot at stake with whoever the next mayor is. So joining us now is David Brand, who, when last he was on this podcast, was the uh, indefatigable editor of the Queen's Eagle, and is now the new senior reporter covering homelessness and housing uh, for the Great City Limits. Uh, congratulations, and uh, welcome, David. Thank you, Harry. Whoop, whoop. Thank you. <laughs> so, David, thank, thanks for joining us. I, I see that we had this uh, this annual homelessness count, right? The mm-hmm. hope count, and uh, things are looking great. So, it's a thirty eight percent drop in the homeless population, a twenty three percent drop in the uh, subway system. Mayor Bill De Blasio says some things were absolutely proven. 
uh, the specialized beds that encourage people to come in worked. We know that they worked and sort of patted himself on the back here. Is this good news or what's going on in this very weird year with the street homeless population and how the city and the state to some extent are handling them? Well, the Hope Cal numbers are always, I think, to be taken with a grain of salt. And I think in this most recent year in particular, because they changed the format uh, rather than just having people go out one night and having like thousands of people canvas all of the city. They had four nights where only outreach workers went out in specific areas and leading in the days leading up to the count, they stepped up sweeps of homeless encampments and uh, they call pop-ups where pe- people are staying overnight, whether that's the subways or public spaces. And so they kind of move people off the streets and the subways leading up to the count. People are already being moved out of the subways because of the uh, suspension of overnight service. So advocates are saying that leads to an undercount for sure. Something that's already suspect even more so with some of those strategies going in. Advocates will also point out that the stabilization beds really do work like they, because they are private rooms, a lot of them in commercial hotels, they are starting to successfully get people off the streets and into those beds, but there's still what needs to be created and what needs to be done to move people off the streets, off the subways, off of public spaces, out of parks, is to create true permanent housing for people. Uh, And there's often not that pathway or not an easy pathway. So even people are moving into a stabilization bed, temporary bed, that does not necessarily mean they'll be moving into permanent housing. So it's a... There are all these different conversations in a confused way always around homelessness and different populations you're talking about, like with with single men, with families, what this means. But this year in particular, a lot has been scrambled up. Uh, The hotel industry more or less shut down. Mm -hmm. A lot of those places and in Manhattan were were reused as, as shelters, which, you know, from the perspective of the owners kept kept revenue coming in uh, but they're naturally eager to reverse that now and this mayor obviously is coming as as he's patting himself on the back and other people are saying that the success here is really in the, the city pushing inhumane circumstances right ahead of the count but but now maybe we could say this too about people staying in the streets because it is a a relatively small percentage of the total homeless population but it's also it's the most visible and uh, the, the, the one that leads to the most tabloid coverage. But Coalition for the Homeless did a survey a couple months ago talking with about 200 street homeless people, and about 80% of them had been in the city shelter system, in the Department of Homeless Service shelter system, determined that there was no pathway to housing, they found it unsafe, it didn't meet their needs, and so they either moved onto the streets or returned to the streets. And overwhelmingly, what the respondents said they wanted is permanent housing. And so, you know, there was someone living in Ridgewood, there was someone who was staying on the border of Ridgewood and Glendale in Queens. And he is someone who said he moved into uh, a DHS shelter, was robbed multiple times, decided to leave, started staying outside under train tracks in Ridgewood and Glendale. Time after time, the Department of Sanitation in conjunction with Department of Homeless Services conducted sweeps to move him to try to encourage him, not uh, kind of in a punitive way, to get out of the street. He refused to go. He said, I'm not leaving unless I get permanent housing. Eventually moved from the area he was staying in right on the border to another part of Ridgewood near another train station, another M train station. And not that long ago, he was murdered. 
and he was killed in a fight with another person experiencing homelessness. And it was a late night fight. They were probably both uh, either drunk or on drugs. They got into a fight. He ended up dying from his injuries. Now, to me, that's totally preventable, to totally preventable death, really tragic person. If he had been in a permanent housing, which is what he wanted, never would have died. The other person, if he was in permanent housing, never would be now charged with murder and facing potential life in prison for this fight on the street that turned into uh, one guy dying, one guy facing the rest of his life behind bars. So I think that's just like a really stark example of totally preventable deaths that the city advocates will say is partly responsible for by not providing permanent housing as a right to people. So David, can we zoom out 30,000 feet just a little bit? And can you walk us through sort of the structure of the Department of Homeless Services and how we got to this point? Like, is the person who's in charge, are they qualified? Are they working with the mayor closely? Are they being truthful about this count? Why is it that we can put a man on the moon and we can't seem to figure out how to give people stable housing? Yeah, well, the person in charge, Steve Banks, commissioner of Department of Social Services, which includes Department of Homeless Services and Human Resource Administration, HRA, extremely well qualified, a hero to a lot of people in the homeless service and uh fight to end homelessness prior to his career in the de Blasio administration because he was head of legal aid and would constantly challenge the city to, you know, improve conditions for people experiencing homelessness and get them housed. And so de Blasio said, all right, put your money where your mouth is. I'm putting you in charge of Department of Social Services. And so I think, you know, I, I, I think Banks is committed to people. And I think that everyone working within the city is committed to helping people who are experiencing homelessness. But I think what has been the case is it's more about managing the problem and building shelters, moving people into shelter and kind of incrementally reducing the numbers uh, rather than kind of sweeping policy changes that would end homelessness or significantly reduce homelessness in a short amount of time. And that's creating permanent housing and also prioritizing housing, truly affordable housing for people experiencing homelessness. And that's been a major criticism of the Blasey administration that in his housing plan, mandatory, mandatory inclusionary housing, it's less about truly affordable housing for the lowest income and the people experiencing homelessness and more about middle income New Yorkers. So with banks in particular, right, he, he was very involved in the legal cases that, that established the right to shelter here and was an outside advocate who frequently sued the city and pressed it on various consent decrees and now works for the city and is responsible for implementing those. And for all sorts of reasons, the, the total, not street population, homelessness numbers have, have gone up significantly mm-hmm. under de Blasio, uh, you know, suggesting to some extent that the issue here is is pretty fundamentally is math, mm-hmm. uh, de- depending on the, uh, the the cost of shelter, and with a right to shelter in New York, you know you you either have to to pay for rooms like these hotels we're using now, or find permanent supportive housing. The answer always is that the permanent housing is too expensive, but of course the rooms are extremely expensive, and mm-hmm. there are landlords that specialize in those and make make a ton of money off of uh, that business model. I know the council, I think on Thursday, is planning to increase the uh, vouchers. Yeah, yeah, that's been it. It's been an issue that people experiencing homelessness, especially families and advocates, have been pushing for a long time, and it's just been stalled in the council. Uh, Speaker Corey Johnson refused to 
bring it up for a vote. The de Blasio administration also uh, was reluctant to support it because they were saying that if the city was going to raise the value of its rental vouchers, they wanted the state to do that as well uh, because they would say that they, it was shifting the cost burden onto the city. Uh, and the state has already just consistently abdicated their responsibility to helping homeless New Yorkers, people in New York City and throughout the state. Um, and so that they they were they were saying like, oh, well, this would just uh, put more of the burden on the city. That's kind of that theory has been challenged because this, the city and the state vouchers are two separate things. And so there's two separate criteria, the two separate programs. So I don't know that that, that justification doesn't seem to carry that much weight. And it seems like more the problem might be the upfront price tag. But right now, as you mentioned, the city's already spending so much money on shelter beds every night for families. 15,000 kids the other day slept in a homeless shelter. They're spending even more money to rent out rooms and provide services in hotels that have been converted to shelter use. And so this program might carry an upfront price tag of $47 million, but it will be more than offset by the savings on homeless shelters for families and also on hotels being used as homeless shelters. And that's just from a strictly financial perspective. Let's think of the like moral perspective here of having 15,000 Before we get to the morals, morals, I'm I'm reading in city limits, $158 a night or $4,700 a month uh, for for most shelters. And when it's hotels, $237 a night or $7,100 a month instead of any sort of permanent housing. Yeah. Yep. And so that is is the cost of a month to house a family in either a shelter or in a hotel converted for shelter use. Now, the, the current voucher system... Uh, the problem here, I guess we should explain, is that a lot of landlords aren't taking these vouchers because they are below market rate. So if you increase the value of the voucher so that they equal the market rate set by the federal government and that they equal the amount of a Section 8 voucher, that landlords would be more primed to take them because they'll be making more money and they'll be getting that consistent monthly payment, government-backed payment. Um, and we'll get into some of the other issues with that, I guess. but. Uh, that it's going to move thousands of people out of shelter more easily because they'll be able to find apartments. And the other component of this bill is that the voucher wouldn't expire. Right now, you only have a few months with the voucher and then it expires. So if you can't find a landlord willing to accept it, then you're out of luck. Um, so this, is, this, this would be a big win. It's something that advocates and people experiencing homelessness have been pushing for for a very long time, have been very vocal on. And finally, uh, Council Speaker Johnson decided to bring it up for a vote on this coming Thursday. And so if the, for example, the value for a family of two is $1,323 looking for either a one bedroom or a two bedroom, it's almost impossible to find in New York city. And so this would raise it to maybe, I I don't know the exact number, but we'll say $1,800. And so that's a $500 increase per month for a family, but compared to the cost of housing people in shelters or in hotels, it's, a significant savings. And then I guess we can get back to the moral issue of that is, should we have a single kid living in a homeless shelter or a single kid growing up homeless? I was at this event that uh, Speaker Johnson, former Speaker Christine Quinn and Stephen Levin were holding outside a shelter operated by WIN, Women in Need, the organization that's run by former Speaker Christine Quinn. And after the event, I kind of chased Corey Johnson down the street because uh, he left a little early, but the event was still going on. So 
chasing down the street, just asked them like, what was the holdup? What took so long to get this done? And people have been pushing for it for several years now. And we were talking. And so there were some passerbys who were just kind of looking like, what is Corey Johnson doing on a random street corner, talking to a reporter in East Harlem? And he started walking away and this woman and her son were talking. She's like, I think that's Corey Johnson. And so I said, yeah, he's, he was here to announce uh, that they're raising the voucher value. And she was like, I'm in that exact predicament right now. And so that kind of showed to me just the extent of this problem that random encounter with a woman and her son on the street, they were going through this exact problem. A landlord won't take their voucher because it's priced too low. So I think that illustrated a lot to me. Yeah. With these vouchers, with Section 8 vouchers, people often say that they have hard times finding landlords who, uh, who, who, who will, will take this money mm-hmm. and exchange it for shelter. Yeah. And th- th- that, that's been a problem. Obviously, there's some price point at which that changes. But how does this work in practice? And do you end up in, in, in effect where, where you have what are functionally just Section 8 buildings or city voucher buildings? And uh, just one other thing I wanted to ask is I, I saw the city has a story up saying that youth – who are in homeless shelters, who Bill de Blasio has promised uh, would, would have access to vouchers, aren't going to get access to vouchers. And uh, in fact, that the city had an internal agreement that the only way that they, they might be able to is if they go into adult shelters, which, which is not necessarily, it seems to me, the, uh, the safest or best thing for, for younger people who are already homeless. Yeah, and that was a great story by the city too, where you know we can all take a victory lap maybe saying, yeah, we're getting this voucher value increase raised. People are going to be getting apartments that maybe they weren't able to before. And yet there's still this issue that young people are going to face this additional hurdle of having to move from a youth shelter or having, if they are experiencing homelessness in some other way, maybe they're doubled up with uh, friends or family, or, you know, there's survival sex where people will exchange sex for a place to stay. And yet they still will have to go into a, an adult shelter, which many have found uh, unsafe and with many can be unsafe or it's just an unnecessary hurdle to get this voucher. So that's definitely an issue. Um, the other issue you kind of mentioned with landlords declining these vouchers is a huge problem, source of income discrimination. And so there is the issue of the voucher value is not keeping up with the market rent in New York City. But there's also another issue of discriminatory landlords, brokers, agents who believe they're just outright deny people who have vouchers and say in their Craigslist listings, no vouchers and what's usually no programs. But people have really wisened up that they're going to get in trouble and that they might that that's easy to prove. You take a screenshot and say, oh, they denied me housing. It says no programs on their Craigslist listing. So what they do is just ghost people as soon as they find out they have a voucher. And that's a little more challenging to prove. But not really when you have a a testing program, when you have investigators, uh, and the city does do this to an extent, but not much. Their enforcement is very thin. Uh, Nonprofits will do this as well. But you you have one person call up the landlord and say, I have a voucher. Don't get a response for days. You have another person call up, say, I'd like to look at this apartment. Uh, I make $56,000 a year because I'm employed. Five minutes later, you go, oh, when do you want to see the apartment? So you know, you can prove that pretty easily. You can prove a pattern of that, but enforcement of source of income discrimination has not been prioritized. And in fact, has been eroded over the last few years, even though this is such a huge problem that especially homeless New Yorkers are experiencing. 
So, David, I've got a question because um, I'm curious as to who all the players are, because you've alluded to this uh, conversation about what's going on in the city and the state money that's involved. And so who of our electeds have been leading the charge to try and figure this out and who is holding up the line? Well, uh, the General Welfare Committee chair, Stephen Levin, introduced this legislation, has been fighting for it since 2018. So I would say he's, he's leading the charge on this. And then uh, more progressive members in the council, I think. Corey Johnson has not introduced it until, or not, not, not introduced it, but is not bringing this up for a vote over the past few years. And we'll finally do that on Thursday. He's been facing more pressure, especially recently. Uh, advocates went to his home to protest a couple of weeks ago. And then last week they went to his office to read a letter saying, you need to bring this to a vote now. So you talk to advocates and they say, you could have brought this up for a vote a long time ago, even with the de Blasio administration kind of resisting it. They've had a veto proof majority for at least a year now. So it's unclear to me why he wouldn't have brought that up. And I talked to him yesterday. He said, the main issue was that state FEP, city FEPS reasoning. Again, advocates kind of questioned that. And then I asked them, does this, did this have anything to do with your campaign for controller? Having a big ticket item come up, you know, a couple of weeks before you're running to oversee city finances. He said, oh, I didn't think about that. That, that, that <laughs> seems a little hollow to me. I didn't really even think about that. And he said, no. <laughs> um, but I've heard he did think about it, but I would frame this if I were him is this is cost savings. This is not only a moral righteous thing to do. This is also saving the city money on shelters and on hotels as shelters, which I don't think anyone is a fan of. So can we talk about us? Go back to street crime for a minute, which you brought up before. Uh, you know, there've been a whole series of incidents with homeless people getting attacked mm-hmm. sometimes by other homeless people. Mm-hmm. And then being involved, particularly in the uh, trains, in attacks. And this has captured a lot of press recently. The trains are open 24 hours again. What is and what should be happening there? And, and something Andrew Yang stepped into a little bit ago. What what role, or, or answered reasonably, depending on your perspective, should, should the police be playing in all of this? That's we, a good question. Solve, I mean, uh, New York's problems. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, right. it, on, it's, it's a tough question because you get people on 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 the left who will say, uh, you know, housing is is healthcare, and so if we have permanent housing for people experiencing homelessness, they won't be on the trains experiencing mental health crises to the extent that is is going on, and they won't be sleeping on the trains and staying on the trains. And that is, I think, that's true, and, and, but that's a little bit of a longer term plan. I think if we're speaking realistically, the police are going to have a role in this. The MTA has made that clear. The city has made that clear. Uh, the NYPD has made that clear. And a lot of moderate and even you know moderate left politicians have backed that as well. I think if that is going to be the case, then they definitely need trained mental health professionals, social workers responding, maybe even on the trains. I don't think that's going to totally solve this problem. You can't stop everything from happening, but it's definitely going to stop problems from escalating because a lot of encounters between people in mental health crisis and the police only escalate as soon as someone sees that uniform or as soon as someone who's not trained to deal with people in mental health crisis uh, start getting involved. And so I think one solution is to 
increase the number of mental health professionals that are also going out and not just outreach workers, but people maybe who are traveling with the police. Are hospital beds part of that? That often strikes me as as the the other extremely expensive side that we've abandoned along with uh, with housing. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I don't know how to answer that when it comes to would that be like the police like forcibly removing people into hospital beds or like how, what's your perspective on that? That that's one of the interesting questions we've been trying to ask the candidates uh, their perspective on on Kendra's law, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's right, rightly applied or not enough or too much, uh, some of them have started bringing this up on their own. Eric Adams has talked about it. Uh, Diane Morales, when she was on our podcast, literally didn't know what it was, which mm-hmm. I, I thought was close to disqualifying someone <laughs> running for mayor. Yeah. But I, I, you're, you're the guest, so I, I just have to ask questions. You need to fix uh, fix every all the in, intractable things that happen in New York City, sir. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, I worked in supportive housing in my pre-journalism career. And I would see how police, EMS workers, but I think mostly the police would interact with uh, some of the residents, especially at one place where people had a severe mental illness. And I think that the problems would only escalate sometimes because neither side would back down. And that's the person who has mental illness or is experiencing some, some kind of crisis and the officers involved. And I remember one instance where Someone called one of the residents called 911 on another resident, and she was acting belligerently, not totally dangerous or anything, but you know, threatening. And police came into her apartment and just immediately were aggressive. And so she ended up spitting on one of them. And the, the cop grabbed her by her lapels. I had never seen this, and there's uh, just pushed her into the wall and really like roughed her up. And in that moment, I can get that. You get spit on and react and react aggressively. But if everyone had just taken a step back right before that and understood that this is a circumstance that could escalate, like I was in there, I was not going to, as a social service person, as a case manager, as a counselor, not going to throw her up against the wall. It just seemed like a totally unnecessary reaction. And what could have stopped that reaction was just saying, okay, this is what I can expect going into that. And so, I think there does need to be more training on that regard. That being said, there are going to be like wild situations that I think probably will merit uh, an aggressive response and maybe removing people for the safety of everyone else. And that could be hospital beds. It could be moving people into those kinds of stabilization beds. So I think that is going to happen. So I think when people say, oh, we can't have any type of aggressive response, that's kind of like denying reality, denying the safety of other people around. But I think that a lot of these situations can be diffused by having that kind of perspective going in. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I can't be here saying like I think cops should be throwing people into hospital beds. But I think that there are situations where there does need to be that type of forcible removal. And I think perspective on that, too, is, you know, you work with young people with uh, emotional behavioral needs. And I used to work I used to work with kids with uh, severe emotional needs. And we were trained to administer restraints because if kids were being a danger to themselves or to others, you would put them in these type, these kind of safe restraints. And that's kind of a last resort. But it was important to protect them and to protect other people. They were, after a few minutes, things are diffused, talk about it, move on, and are prepared for that in the future. And so that's kind of an example of, yeah, sometimes these types of 
these types of situations are the reality. And so you do need to remove somebody from the situation. So David, you know, you've been working on this, you have this 360 degree view of all the different players, whether it's police or schools or housing advocates or elected officials. If you could sit down with Banks and de Blasio and give them one or two sort of immediate policy prescriptions from your vantage point, um, what would they be? to sort of get homelessness under control in a way that we just haven't seen thus far. Yeah, I think, I think the voucher thing is going to be important for moving families out of shelters, no doubt about it, increasing the voucher value. I think creating more truly affordable housing. Um, and increasing, hold on, because I, I want to pick it apart. Increasing the voucher, how much? I, well, I think pegging it to Section 8 and to fair market rent as set by the federal mm-hmm. government, which has, that's how they established Section 8. That's going, to be, that's going to be important for moving a lot of families out. I think stepping up enforcement against sorts of income discrimination. So if people are using these vouchers and they're not able to find apartments because landlords and brokers just aren't renting to them, uh, mm-hmm. stepping up enforcement and holding people really accountable for that type of discrimination is going to be important. But I think just creating that type of truly affordable housing. And I, I think to step back from that, just to say housing is a human right. So just having that framework, this is how we're going to accomplish that. And so setting aside more units for people who are moving out of homeless shelters or people who make right now, they have like 40% of area median income. What about, I guess, like 10% or have no income or only have public assistance and having more units set aside for people in those situations, creating more supportive housing for people who do have mental health issues and uh, converting existing hotels and stress properties for support housing and for affordable housing would be big steps for that. And are shelters, is the shelter system, if everything you propose happens, part of the, uh, the solution uh, or the problem at that point? I, should we have a congregate shelter system at all? Or does this just become, you know, like, Bloomberg's complaint about Occupy, like a temporary thing that that, that just becomes permanent and a blight? Uh, well, you know, this the city has an important right to shelter mandate. And so the shelter is going to be important. But I think what's important is not just putting people in a congregate shelter and then uh, letting them stay there without many affordable housing options. It's going to be really yeah, creating that affordable housing, move them out of shelter as fast as possible. But I think what people like that has happened during the pandemic is that so many people have moved from congregate shelter to individual rooms in hotels. Uh, and so there's either one or two beds in a hotel and it's been safer. It's been more comfortable. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, it's like, they're not in, I'm not in survival mode when I'm in a room with one other person or by myself at the way I am in a shelter. And that kind of allows people to stabilize. And so but that, that's be, ending now, right? Just because because that, that was with the pandemic. And yeah, the, the exactly. Kick money to hotel owners. And, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people want to see that continue. And I think a way to do that really effectively would be to just purchase those buildings and turn those into affordable housing, whether that's supportive housing or you know, they call it housing with light touch services, which is maybe check in with counselor or case manager as needed, but it's a little less formal than a supportive housing site. And so that would cost money again up front. But if you have, the building already, you're already spending money on it. It would lead to savings, it would reduce the homeless population, 
uh, and lead to a lot of successful outcomes. Really quickly before we let you go, what mayor do you think has come up with the most substantive plan to address homelessness and get people into the supportive housing and permanent housing they need? You mean which which of the candidates? Which mayoral candidate? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, they, each of them has addressed it, and it has proven to be a big issue for New York voters. Is recent poll that it was, I think, the number two issue. I think another one had it at the number one issue. So, you know, I think a lot of them are talking about it, and so people are happy about that. I think Diane Morales has a compelling array of solutions. Um, she's not going to win, most likely. So if you look at people like Eric Adams, Andrew Yang, you know, they talk about building more supportive housing. Adams, in particular, has talked about converting hotels into stress buildings to supportive uh, to affordable housing. So I think that's important acknowledgement, even from someone who's pretty moderate. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure. I mean, they each have their their ideas, but uh, we shall see who has the political will and courage to take on some of these programs. David, thank you so much for taking the time Thanks and joining so much, us. David. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing conversation. I'm excited to keep reading your work uh, on homeless issues and also housing issues at city limits. Thank you. Appreciate your writing. And with that, let's go from somebody who's reporting on homelessness to uh, somebody who is and has uh, experienced it as Alex Lynn talks with the homeless hero. Hi, my name is Alex Brooklyn from FAQ NYC. And I'm here with Shams DeBaron, a.k.a. The Homeless Hero. Where are we? We're right here in Harlem. We're walking up 126th Street. You know, we're right around from the Adam Clayton Powell Jr. State Office building. And, you know, we're just, we're just talking. In a minute, we're going to hear a little bit about Shams' story and experience during... You know, the last, what is it, two years or a year and a half? No, it's not even a year. Oh, well, COVID is... COVID is a year and a couple of months. Yeah, so a year and a couple of months. And uh, how his story kind of reflects what's been going on with uh, New York's most vulnerable population during COVID. My name is Shams the Baron. I mean, I do a lot of things, but in essence, uh, I'm basically uh, engaged in advocating for people that are directly impacted by homelessness. My family is situated from, from Harlem, um, but I grew up in the Bronx and Harlem. I was a product of foster care since two. Uh, I grew up in the 70s when, at a time when we were surrounded by gangs and stuff. I was mentored by gang leaders. My Bibles that was given to me back then was Sun Tzu's Art of War, Machiavelli's The Prince. And, you know, I grew up in hostile environments but I also grew up in a time when hip hop was emerging. It wasn't all hip hop. And that would formed a lot of the basis of who I am because I was pivotal in the development of that culture as a hip hop, well now a hip hop pioneer. Ah. <laughs> Come show me some love. Y'all gotta get this. Yeah, of course. <laughs> What's up, man? How you doing, man? What's How going you on? Been, man? How's everything with Good you? Good yeah. Morning, you know, staying alive, man. Staying alive. Staying alive. Staying alive. Home, staying alive. You know, we won't say make it a couple of times. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> tell, tell them who you are. Tell them who I am. I'm Dave Pernell Booberry. This is my closest friend. Like, I don't know him, but I'm just coming from work. It's a sham. You know, we used to hang a long time ago, way back. Like, how long? Like, 
How long? <laughs> we was baby Zulu nations. That's how long. <laughs> we was baby Zulu. Uh-huh. Ain't nobody mess with us. We was the young cats running around, not scared of nobody. Bronxdale, Riverdale, we was everywhere. <laughs> Harlem, I'm from Harlem, but we 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 was in Harlem too. And yeah. we gotta say God bless the dead to my man Joe. That's his brother. Yeah, that was my yeah. heart right yeah. here. So yeah. you know, but yeah. yo, you keep staying alive, man. Uh, I'm gonna uh, jump this ship. Uh, I'm out of here. I love you, bro. I love you. All right, yo. Nice to meet you. Yo, we gotta have a reunion this summer. Unfortunately, in the 80s, the crack era uh, came into existence. And uh, like many youth out here, of course, I got involved in terms of selling drugs and stuff like that, which I don't like to talk about because it's not, you know, it's not, and it's nothing to me. And but, you, um, you raised kids in New York, right? Yeah, definitely. You have how yeah. many? I got six kids. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how, how old's Never. your oldest? My oldest is 30. Yeah. And I'm a proud dad. I'm a proud dad. I engage my kids all the time and stuff like that. And, and I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm really proud, you know, despite everything else, you know, when I look at it, I'm like, I'm really extremely proud. You know, my kids are proud of me, especially now. Like, like the engagement I have now with my kids because they see what I'm doing is I, I didn't have this a year ago or two years ago. So I'm kind of like running with this now because it's like I make them proud, you know, and, 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 and that's important because, you know, for me, when you look at the homeless hero, the homeless hero is not about me. That name represents all people that are experiencing homelessness and all of us that's on this journey from being out here in these streets. I used, I slept over here, you know, and I slept in these streets and, and ran these streets. At the same time, I used to own these blocks, like as far as making money. I made hundreds of thousands of dollars of some of these blocks right here. Some of these buildings didn't look like it. All of that wasn't there when I was making the money. But if I can inspire or, or in, uh, people that come from where I come from, people that are going through what I'm going through, to say that no matter what we've been through, we can still do this. We can still be in this space and, and make our children proud and people we love proud. You can do it too. So one of the reasons we um, were so eager to have you on FAQ NYC is because in this past year and a half, and during COVID, it's been such a struggle to kind of come to terms with some of the things that the city did not build a social infrastructure for prior to the pandemic. One of those things is homelessness. Um, in a lot of ways, we've talked about on the show how the closing of the subways overnight really brought out the lack in the shelter system. And you have uh, pretty, personal experience with that. Can you just share your story of how you first entered into the shelter system and what your experience was with it? Well, first of all, let's understand that um, I'm a product of the foster care system. I entered the foster care system at the age of two. We all go back from the sandbox, but our substance of choice was either weed or alcohol. That's basically it. But alcohol gripped a lot of us. You know, and so, you know, that was our um, coping. And, you know, back in the days, it was just what we did. But, you know, as we got older, myself, I can speak for, it became like the coping mechanism. So I seen it getting out of control. So 
I had came to New York and I had asked for help. And when they sent me to a place, it was a shelter. Off top, I didn't like the experience. Before I even got in, I saw how unprofessional the security was and the staff was. And I was like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing this. So I said I was going to go back out of town and rode the trains to... Uh, for the you know until the morning time where I would jump on a bus and go back out of town, but I had encountered I, I didn't even know this existed. I encountered what's known as a, the, the diversion a diversion program. I walked off the train the train to transfer to the other end, you know, and I just had to survive. You know, I just had to make it through to six in the morning. Nothing for me, but. When I walked out, it was like 10 police officers. So I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. But the officers came to me and they asked me, you know, hey, you know, everything all right? I said, yeah, everything all right. Uh, it, uh, you know, just to make conversation, I asked them if the, the train on the other side was going back downtown. So they asked me, hey, is everything all right? You know, we can help you, this and that. So because it was so cold that night, I was thinking that, you know, they was offering help. They sent me to, a, to what they said was a hotel, but it turned out to be a shelter. Right. And when I seen that, I was like, oh, I'm not doing this. Originally, I was on Ward's Island. So the idea of a shelter was like, nah, I'm not doing no shelters, you know? Greenpoint was okay, but it didn't offer no services. You know what I mean? It was just a bed. And because I saw myself drinking, I was like, nah, I better get some help for the drinking. When I encountered the police, I figured that when they was offering the help, I said, I could do a drop-in center for the night. You know, and a drop-in center is usually like a place you go, you might sit in a chair all night, this and that. And that night was extremely cold, so I said, ah, maybe that would be all right. Give me some rest and stuff like that. But it turned into at least 10 officers surrounding me, which made me nervous. <laughs> and then they started running my name to see if I had any warrants. Thank God I didn't. And I'm like, you know, at that point, I'm, I'm, I'm really scared to say, like, hey, look, I'm good. Forget this. I don't, I don't want to do all this. Because my experience is if you show signs of nervousness, that kind of heightens them and they, it, it kind of makes them feel like they got to, uh, you know, they got to engage you more. You have to kind of calculate and be super aware and on top of your own mannerisms so as not to kind of make the police nervous. You said that all nice. Let's just say as a black person, as a black person, I grew up like this. Whether it's substance abuse, mental illness, homelessness. As a black person, you know how many times I've been stopped, arrested, thrown through the jail, going through bullpen therapy? I've done that all my life dealing with them. So it wasn't the substance abuse, the homelessness, or anything that heightened me. It's the fact that interactions with the police have not been positive. So that's what heightened my, you know, my, my concern for my own safety. This is just part of the black experience. And we, let's just stop putting
put it to homelessness or substance use or anything like that. This is part of the black experience. Our engagement is not really always good because it, in, in most cases, it ends up with a negative experience, whether it be jail, whether it be just them talking to you in a way that's just not um, respectful of your humanity. We're talking about the diversion program at that time. That diversion program was targeting black and brown people. So if it was white people, it might be a little different, that experience. It wasn't just a homeless thing. But the policies that are put in place negatively impact black and brown people. And the reason why that has to be centered in the conversations because we have to draw a connection towards, towards the um, policies that are sustained through uh, systemic racism. So I asked for help. I, I just wanted help. What happened was I ended up being placed in handcuffs. I ended up being driven to a police station. I ended up having my shoelaces untied. I was taken out. I taken out. I ended up. I ended up being placed in a jail cell. I didn't commit no crime. They didn't see me sleeping on the train. They didn't see me committing no crime. I didn't hurt nobody. I wasn't doing anything. I asked for instructions as to which train I should get on. They offered help that I thought would be beneficial to me. And in return, I ended up in a jail cell. So let's be clear about that. And I don't think that was a homeless thing as much as it was a thing that where, you know, the system uh, or the city is not respecting, you know, black and brown people in a manner that respects their humanity. Especially when they have police doing a lot of this outreach rather than actual nonprofits. But even the well, non- even the nonprofits is bad. The nonprofits, there is issues with the security, issues with safety. There's no supportive services for yeah. mental health, substance abuse, or even just finding housing or employment. Exactly. What we call is the shelter industrial complex. And what uh, de Blasio's administration and even Cuomo's administration um, has um, been so adamant about sustaining is this shelter industrial complex. I mean, I wasn't thinking about this <laughs> at that time. You know, I just was like, what the hell is going on? And then at some point I was so scared because I'm like, do I got a warrant? Did I have to train before? Like, am I going to really be stuck in jail because of what, you know? And then going through the process, then I'm like, I'm scared to say, like, look, I don't want the help. Forget it. I'm good. Because that might make them uh, feel like something is wrong, like I did something wrong. And that could turn into a volatile situation. So there's a lot of trauma that comes with that just from past experiences and for everything that, you know, you see that's going on. You know, other people's uh, uh, um, uh, experiences also affect us you know we know that you know you know talking the wrong way can lead to a a a a violent conversation so all these things are going through my head everything you were dealing with at the time you still also had to be nervous about how you were coming off to the people that exactly exactly so it got to the point where it's like yo you just volunteered to be arrested (laughs) you know what i mean and i've never had that experience until that moment the, the ironic thing is that they literally took me back to BRC. You know, that's their main outreach group. 
was a block away from the place that I said I'm not going to go into. So they brought me back to the place I said I'm not going in. So I started, I, I ended up back where I started from. Um, but what it did was it, I, the other side of my thought process was, you know what? See what this is all about. See where this is going to end up. And I did that. And, and, and what I saw was so many flaws in the system. And whereas, you know, I saw how it won't work for homeless people that experience in homelessness. It's a traumatizing, dehumanizing, demoralizing, and, and a criminal experience. You know, I was criminalized in that process. I wasn't necessarily helped. And um, the traumas that it brought up is, you know, I'll probably be dealing with that for years. And during COVID, you got COVID at um, a shelter. Yeah. And that is why they moved you eventually to the Lucerne Hotel on the Upper West Side? Well, COVID came. The shelter system wasn't prepared at all. You know, um, when they told everybody to stay indoors, to quarantine, don't go outside and all of that, we were still being kicked out into the streets. We had to get up and leave every day at 845 in the morning and clear out, clear out the space. And so when you go in the streets, the only people you would see literally is people that are experiencing homelessness, either from the shelter or directly impacted homeless people. They shut down the trains at some point, so people from the trains was fussed out into the streets as, as well. I didn't even understand what was going on. I was seeing defecation in the streets that I, I, I would never, I'm like, yo, it's a bus stop. Like who would, this was COVID. This is a pandemic. This is a crisis. This is a, something that we didn't expect. It came and it hit us and I understand all of that. I didn't, I, I, let me say this, I understand now. At the time, we were all processing in real time. So things happened, you know? It took a minute before I realized, oh, the libraries are closed, so nobody could use the bathroom. Starbucks is shut down, nobody can use the bathroom. And okay, so as bad as it may seem, this is what that is, you know? You know, it, it became a, it, it wasn't, forget, you know, backlash and all that. What we had to experience is safety issue. The fear that gripped us is something that I've never seen in all my experience. I grew up out here, you know, I grew up through, I, you know, survived the cracker and all this and that. I know what crime is like on every type of level, um, from state to state, whatever. But I saw a fear or experienced a fear that I've never experienced in none of the hostile environments or situations I've ever been in and, and throughout my entire life. Some people, 25 years in jail, survived and they're paroled to a shelter. Survived everything and they there, still surviving are now literally in fear for their life. No control, no nothing. And we were all in that same boat. Before they said we needed to wear masks, remember they said we didn't need that at first. Oh, I remember. They said it for a long time. <laughs> for a long Don't time. Don't wear any masks. So imagine how many people were, now this is the number one protector. All right. They told us we didn't need this. They said the other thing was sanitizer, washing your hands, right? We didn't have soap in the dispensers, the basic stuff. We didn't have soap in the dispensers, nor did we have sanitizer. Think about that. 
We didn't have the basic necessities in congregate settings where people are separated by no more than a couple of feet, not six feet. And it's maybe on a floor in the, in the shelter I was in, 35, 40 people to a floor. What shelter was that? Project Renewals, uh, Kenton Hall, and then you had around the corner, Third Street. So when we go to eat, we got both shelters coming together, almost three, almost 400 people that are going in one place. And at first, nobody even knew how to social distance. We all had to be creative to say, oh, what if we put tape on the floor to show everybody where to be? Like, nobody gave us instruction. I went on the CDC website to learn what social distance was to learn what protocols was in congregate settings. And then I went back to the directors of the shelter to say, wait, hold the hell up. We're not even following these protocols. Y'all know the protocols? They like, yeah, so why are we not following it? There was no testing, so you didn't know that. You had to go on symptoms. There were black people that never showed the fever. I never showed the fever, yet I had it. You know, but they were measuring whether or not you have it, making decisions based on you, based, even if you went to the hospital, oh, you don't have a fever, you're good, go back home. That person gets sicker and end up dying by the time they end up to the hospital. But it was worse in the shelter because in the shelter, they didn't have no, they wasn't prepared for none of this. And because the city didn't care, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get deep because it gets emotional. <laughs> I almost died. That's okay. It. But because the city didn't care, and I don't want to sound like somebody that's ranting, but I, I lived it, so I, I'm just keeping it real with you. The city was not just not prepared, but they didn't care. They didn't care. I begged for the sanitizer. I begged for soap. And yeah, it was problems with it, but y'all should have had it. Y'all never had sanitizer. I've never seen sanitizer in the shelter. These are basic things. How come y'all didn't know how to socially distance? You got 300 people in a congregate setting. Why the hell are we in this setting anyway? A normal thing that happens when you enter a shelter, whether wards, I don't care where you at, if it's a congregate setting, you're gonna get sick. If someone gets a cold or flu or anything that spreads all around, that's normal. And when you know that one person got it, you know that at some point I'm going to get the flu. Can you imagine the thought process when you watching the news and you seeing a virus spread so fast, but it's killing people and you see refrigerated trucks, you see bodies being buried in, in, in potter's field. And you dealing with substance use disorder, you dealing with mental illness, and you're homeless? Can you imagine what your thought process is? Can you imagine how you're dealing with that? That's what we were dealing with. So tensions are high. Everything is crazy for us. The, the staff is looking at us like reinfected, and we're looking at them like, shh, why the hell? You infected. Like, you know what I'm saying? And so someone had to draw a balance like, hey, we got to find a way to protect all of us. So I'm telling them, like, look, this security guard, he's coughing too much. Get him out of here. That's me doing that. This guy just came from Rikers Island 
and he's coughing too much. Get him out of here. And I'm like, how come y'all not doing the job? Like, why I got to put myself in the firing line like that? That's what I was doing. And that's probably how I got, got the virus. And then I got it, and three days in, I almost died. So once you got sick and once you almost died from COVID, um, did, how long did it take them to move you to the Lucerne Hotel on the Upper Well, West first side? we moved to, um, well, first when I came back. So after I had almost died, three days later, they wanted to move me back to the congregate shelter, to, to, the, to my side shelter. So I was like, wait a minute, now I'm really messed up. Now my breathing is off. Now I'm, you know, all the symptoms are kicking in now. So I'm like, wait, I'm, I'm, I still, I'm not together. Now, publicly, they were saying it took 14 days that you had to be quarantined for 14 days before you start to come across. You, you, you're all right. So I'm like, well, if it's only been seven days, why would you send me back to a congregate shelter? Like, I could still have the virus, which means I would infect everybody else. They were saying, look, man, this is a hotel, man. You, you ain't, you can't live up in here. And I said, no, it ain't about that. But I'm not going back there to infect other people. And I'm sick. I don't even feel, I'm not myself. And at that time, the hospital, this is the height of COVID. This is at its peak. This is when, do the math, the mortality rate, the rate at which people were dying, not getting infected, dying. In the shelters, it was 67% higher in the shelters than the overall mortality rate in New York City. And I'll tell you this, DHS was directly telling them, throw him out. If he doesn't want to leave, call the police. And thank God Charles King from Housing Works said, nah, I'm not doing that. So wait, uh, just for our listeners, DHS is the Department, Department of Homeless Services under uh, DSS, which is Steve Banks and the mayor. You know, the mayor gives the directive, Stephen Banks follow it. And DHS is one of the units under the Department of Social Services. So wait, who said no? Who put the kibosh on that? The Director of Housing Works? The, um, the uh, Director of Housing Works is Stephen, uh, uh, I'm sorry, is Charles, Charles King. And um, he, he refused to follow that director because he understood, like, you know, if they're not ready, like, medically ready to go, why would I send them back? You know, and nobody had real, like, there was no real information on on this, but the basic information was it took 14 days and stuff like that. They didn't even give it 14 days. They were saying after seven days, go back to the shelter because the shelter wanted their money. They got to determine who's going to get paid. If you're in the medical place, I'm, I'm assuming Medicaid is paying that. If you're in the shelter, HRA is paying that. So the shelter is saying, well, look, we got his bed here. We holding his bed. When he coming back? Once I survived COVID, one of the promises I made to myself was that I said, never, ever would I waste a moment. Yeah, I was the homeless hero before that moment, but in writing. So I started making calls and stuff, public advocate, this and that, saying, no. How are you going to let me go back 
You want me to infect them? Forget it. You know what? Transfer me to the streets. Hey, but you got to... No, 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 no. Y'all not going to make no more money off of me. I'll try my luck in the streets. So they slowed up. They gave me seven more days. So that's 14 days. So after 14 days, I still was... I was still was experiencing symptoms like particularly my um, breather and uh, fatigue. So Charles King came to see me directly. And when we sat down and talked, it was, I call it like a negotiation because that was his words. Like, let's negotiate something, you know? He wasn't trying to throw me out, um, but we negotiated another seven days. So by, the, by 21 days, I started to feel a little better. I wasn't all the way there, but I, you know, I didn't want to keep going. You know, but I felt better than I did the seven days prior. When I went back to the shelter, I don't want to put a percentage on it or whatever, but it was extremely worse than when I left it. The COVID had spread throughout the entire shelter. People were in fear. People were fighting. I saw the substance use had gone up. You know, it was just like nothing there to, uh, to really address it. And so when I came back, I sat down with the director we talked about things like the sanitizer. She went and, and made sure that they bought sanitizer uh, for, for the shelter and, and made it available to everybody. So we ended up doing some creative things to try to make it more uh, safe for people. So my peers, what they did was they was, um, they was taking initiative to commandeer because in the shelter, cleaning materials, you, we, we can't have access to that. So they would tell, you know, we'll stand up on the maintenance people and say, yo, turn around. Turn around. You don't see what's going down. And when he turn around, we taking all the equipment, you know, all of the sanitizer, not sanitizer, but the cleaning stuff. And we say, don't worry, we got this. And and they was cleaning the, uh, the stuff and making sure it was sanitized. You got to put that in the context of the fact of... You know, you don't know if somebody sits on this toilet if you can catch COVID. Right. We didn't know. We, we didn't thought know. it lived on surface. Yeah, we thought if yeah, we, we touched the door the now. Exactly. Yeah. It was still no mask. Right, right. Still you know? no mask. That it, but yeah. all we heard was that it lived on surfaces for up to five hours. So we need to put ultraviolet That's light right. on the subway. <laughs> yeah. And we need to wipe our groceries. Exactly, down. exactly. Yeah. So you know, the residents, my peers, we took it upon ourselves, and I didn't initiate this. They were, they were on top of that, and they were making sure places were clean and stuff like that. You know, and this is the environment that we was living in. We were transferred to the first hotel, which was Washington Jefferson, uh, at the end of May, going into June. So you got to figure, we went through this for two months at the height. And when it started to get a little more contained, that's when he decided to move us to the hotels. The mayor was against moving people into hotels. He started the year trying to shut down every hotel and move people into congregate hotel, uh, congregate shelters. And then his goal, his goal is to build more shelters in all the communities. So he wanted to phase out all hotels. So when the city council and uh, homeless advocates were saying, wait, wait, this COVID thing is crazy, put them in shelters, separate them, this and that, 
he was against it and fought it. That's what took the delay. They were starting that campaign in February uh, when the COVID came. February, March, April, May is when he started moving us. Think of all those months and all those lives that could have been saved had he moved faster. He didn't do that. He did it after it was just obvious that, yo, your your policies are killing people. So you did a fair amount of advocating at the Lucerne and that was pretty heavily documented. Um, what happened after you left the Lucerne Hotel? What you mean? Like you found, uh, were you placed in housing or you found housing? Yeah, I found housing. You found housing. And then what happened with the people that like came to your door? What was that story? Oh, you talking about the, what, the fake plumbers? Yeah. Well, you know, you got to understand that we we challenged the city um, because the city wanted to move us from the Lucerne Hotel. And uh, that's the lawsuit that I initiated. Well, I didn't initiate the lawsuit, but I intervened in the lawsuit to say that I didn't want to move to the Radisson Hotel, which I felt was unsafe for the men of the Lucerne. You know, they wanted us to walk through a bar to get into the hotel. I was like, oh, hell no. Um, and the layout of it, I just thought it would be, well, I knew it would be uh, um, harmful to us. And, um, um, you know, that that decision from the mayor was made as a result of him receiving a phone call from a lawyer named Randy Mastro, who was representing a group that are anti-homeless called uh, Westside Community Organization. Uh, they don't want homeless people on in the Upper West Side. And, yeah. Not just in, they don't want them on the Upper West Side. Uh, I, I challenged that, that decision from the mayor. And I secured a lawyer to go in the court and say, you know, nah, we, we don't want to move. You know, that's going to cause irreparable harm. That was in September. In the court process, we have one stays while the court reviews the case. Um, I think what needs to be noted is that this is a, pre- this is a precedent-setting uh, litigation. Either way, because our contention is that the city should consider how their decisions negatively affects their homeless population and make decisions that take our well-being into consideration. The city's contention, and this is important because media, none of, none of, none of media really looks deep into what this is really all about. They think this is about the Radisson versus the Lucerne or West Coast versus Open Hearts. And that's not it. That's, that has nothing to do with what this is really about. Our case is against the city. The West Coast group that intervened was deemed to be in October. They would, it was established that they have no standing. So they're out of this. Sorry, I just got to look. Hello? Yo, let me call you back. I'm in the middle of an interview. That's actually the other person that's on the loose lawsuit. Ah, uh, Travis right. Trammell. I call him my nephew. 
um, the real essence of the case centers around the city saying that under Callahan and the right to shelter, their only responsibility is to provide the roof, the three squares, the bed, and the locker. The shelter system is not required to to, uh, provide anything else to people experiencing homelessness. My argument is, well, what about those of us that deal, that have disabilities? Federally speaking, a disability is mental illness, substance use disorder. So why are we not protected under the same disability laws that would, would, that would protect someone who has a physical disability? We have disabilities. The city is saying, well, we don't consider that. So we're saying, when we tell you get up and go, you get up and go. I, we don't have to take into consideration how that might trigger you to go use drugs, how that might trigger you to go have a mental illness uh, uh, um, um, issue. I'm saying, no, we're not doing that no more. You're not going to walk me through a bar and trigger me because I'm looking for where the liquors is at. I'm not going there. And if you go to the court hearings, they're saying because they're homeless, they don't have the right to question us. They have to go under Callahan where we tell them to go. I'm challenging them. So who do you think sent the plumbers here, the fake plumbers here? Well, we know who sent them. West Coast pays Randy Mastro, and they sent them. They paid for this. And what do you think the aim was? What was the goal? They, to embarrass me. They, they wasn't going to stop the case because the case is not predicated upon me or the men of the Lucerne. The case is, let me tell you, because people are totally uneducated. And it, it's like weird because I'm like, damn, this is just basic information. The lawsuit is not brought by me. It's brought by downtown New Yorkers. That lawsuit is going no matter what. Even if I wasn't in the case, that lawsuit is going. So when you look at the language, hold on, you better put this in there. You look at Randy Mastro's paperwork, it's racist language in there. This racist lawyer said that this, he's talking about me, he said he made bold, bold and ludicrous statements. Not bold and ludicrous statements, bold. (laughs) He's a comedian too. I like that. But he also said, yeah, and he also, he's talking about me, is dancing for the cameras. This is to indicate that there's a minstrel show going on. This is a racist lawyer. And he's using that because he's mad that we pushed for him to get taken off of the board of the directors for Legal Aid Society. We felt that was a conflict of interest. How the hell you got this racist lawyer on your board of directors and they kicked him off. They didn't, you know, they didn't keep him going. Now, this question, it's hard to ask. Ask. So, like de Blasio had a young homeless woman named Dasani, you know, at his inauguration. Right now, because of the Democratic mayoral election, there are a lot of people 
very interested in talking a big game about what they're going to be able to do for the homeless, especially homeless with mental illness or uh, substance abuse issues. Once the mayoral election has been won by whomever, Yang, Morales, Wiley, Stringer, Garcia, like how do you keep in the conversation when you don't have these people trying to win an election running after you to to campaign with? Well, most of the people that you mentioned have asked me to endorse them. Of course, of course people want you to endorse them. But my question is, how do you make sure that you can still advocate once the election is over like how how many people do you think are really gonna how many of these po politicians are really gonna still be around that, you know, well, that's a good question you know like well let me say this you know and i'm heavily invested listen i'm, I'm like a, i mean where i'm from you know some of us pay attention to elections some of us don't my, my normal way of thinking was man we still gonna be poor it don't matter who in the office right but because I saw how much power that that mayor had, it's almost like a dictatorship. Like, he literally, by the stroke of a pen, could determine whether I win or lose in life. De Blasio. De Blasio. And it's not about De Blasio, because it's been like that. You know, racism, structural racism, existed long before he got into office. And maybe he's tried to do good, but when he got in, you know, it's probably more than he can handle. So it's not to really target him in a negative way like that, but that's how the system is set up. But the reason why I said I have to get involved in the political aspect of things and hopefully have some type of influence or just a conversation with the people that are running for office is to infuse them with information so they can address, you know, our, our issues in a, in, a, in a productive way, regardless of who's going to win. What I, what I will say, and you know I did the mayor candidates forum, what I will say that you got to take as a victory is that they've all, for the record, have stated that they will move away from a shelter first policy to a housing first policy. That's major for New York City. That is totally contrary to the current mayor's way of thinking. They have also agreed, all of the candidates have agreed to phase out shelters and to figure out how to build more housing. And so many other things that come into that in terms of dealing with mental illness, in terms of dealing with substance use disorder and, and the other issues, even the, the violence that we see. They've all agreed to address these issues and that's never happened before. They're on the record with that. I will say so was de Blasio on the record for a lot of things before he got into office. The, the, but, but de Blasio, didn't have, he didn't have me on the scene. <laughs> so you're gonna keep them accountable. I'm gonna make sure they're accountable. And, and listen, here's the thing. If they want another four years, they gotta do right within the first 100 days. That's the, that's the litmus test. What, I put them on the record as to what are you going to do for the first 100 days. If they don't do what they're supposed to do within the first 100 days, we're going to start on day 101 getting them out of office. 
Have you endorsed anyone yet? Not yet. Not yet? It's coming. It's coming? Yeah. Before June 22nd? Definitely before June 22nd. And you don't want to make news now? Definitely not. No, definitely not. Okay. I, you know, but I, I, will, I will say this, though. You know, for everybody out there, that this election is probably the most, regardless of age groups, this election is probably the most important election of our time. I've been around for a minute, and I've never felt the importance of election until now. And, and it's, it, we've never had this amount of progressives. We never had this opportunity. It was either or either. Honestly, I like all of the candidates. And, and I wish I could just have like a, a council of mayors to run the city. Because, you know, we're in a mess right now, you know, uh, coming from recover, uh, COVID. We got to recover. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics. Check us out at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens and a beach somewhere sunny and far, far away. A special thanks to our guests, David Brand of City Limits and Shams DeBaron, the homeless hero. Be safe, be well, be kind, be cool, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>